This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. Today's guest is a beekeeper out of the Bay Area in California who gained her roots in beekeeping while working for the Maui Queen Bee Company in Hawaii. She learned the ins and outs of queen rearing as a beginning beekeeper. She loves to teach others about bees and natural beekeeping and has designed a business that provides valuable education to the community and fellow beekeepers. Please welcome Emily Bondor of the Santa Cruz Bee Company. Well, hi. Hi. <laughs> it's good to meet you. Yeah, you too. Taka Seville mm -hmm. was like, you need to talk to Emily. <laughs> oh, well, that's very sweet. Yeah, I had been so excited to meet Taka because, like, I... I was just had been following her on Instagram and seeing all the things she was doing. And then uh, it was at April Mundia last year that I got to meet her. And just immediately we were like, wow, you're so awesome. So <laughs> we really connected and just had a ton of comment. And I loved going to that conference because a lot of the beekeeping meetings and things that I go to, there's not a ton of people like in their 20s. Mm -hmm. um, so that was cool to like meet the people that were sort of in the same age cohort that were professionally beekeeping yeah and like movers and shakers in the industry too yeah it's 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 a pretty exciting time because even I've been keeping bees for about seven years now and I feel like when I was starting out I didn't really know anyone else at all you know initially and then all the people that I started meeting were all guys that were like in their 50s and 70s and I was like oh this is like not my age cohort yeah. And I don't really have a lot in common with these people. And now I'm starting to meet a lot more people that are doing sort of similar work in different areas of the country and around the world that are like, you know, bringing new energy to it, which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, we really are the next generation yeah. of beekeepers. Yeah. There's going to, there, I mean, there's got to be a changing of the guards at some point, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's cool to kind of see people stepping up and new approaches and um, yeah, just different, different blood. Yeah, <laughs> so. absolutely. Yeah. And more women and more diversity. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's a huge piece of it. And I'm really glad to be, you know, that becoming a bigger part of the conversation. Yeah. Okay. So I always like to know people's origin stories. So you've been working yeah. with bees for like seven years. What were you yeah. doing before bees? It wasn't too long after graduating from undergrad from college. I, I went to school in Massachusetts. I, I'm, I'm from New Jersey originally, so grew up on the East Coast and went to school in Amherst, Massachusetts. And then after, I always knew that I wanted to be in California or in the Bay Area, you know, from I don't know when. But as a teenager, I wanted to go to school out here. And my parents were like, no, stay on the East Coast, you know. <laughs> Give us, give us some, a little more time to be with you. Um, so then after I graduated, I moved. I'd never been to California before, and I just was like, all right, I'm just going to look for positions. And um, I ended up doing two years of this program called AmeriCorps, which is kind of like domestic Peace Corps, and they're like contract positions for about like 11 months. And so that gives you a chance to try out a line of work. And uh, it was really appealing to me because they offer – they don't – pay very well, but they offer um, money for paying off student loans or for tuition for school. So for me, that was very appealing, kind of not knowing what I wanted to do immediately. And I also, I graduated in 
2011. So it wasn't right when the recession had hit, but there was still kind of a scarcity of jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we're sort of trying to figure out, okay, what can I do just with undergraduate degree and having not really had job experience? So for one year, I was in San Jose, California, and I was working for this urban forestry program. Oh, cool. So we were, yeah, we were basically replanting and establishing trees in the urban landscape to kind of help with just making the city nicer. And, (laughs) you know, Silicon Valley, it was just like, basically during the 80s, they like paved everything and just turned it into like this huge urban landscape, which is so sad because, you know, 50, 100 years ago, that's where like all of the beautiful fruit orchards were. So it's like a really great place for having orchards and growing food. And then kind of that culture sort of went away when technology came in. So so that was kind of a big part of the that program was kind of and my job was basically young tree care and going out and making sure that the newly planted trees had water and mulch and were staked up and were, you know, healthy and everything. So kind of that young tree care. <laughs> so, um, and that kind of, that got me really interested in horticulture and started getting more interested in gardening and farming. And I knew I wanted to do some kind of like outdoor education programming. So then I realized that it would be good for me to get more like education experience. So my second year doing AmeriCorps, I moved up to San Francisco and I was working for this program called Jumpstart. And that basically for ages like three through five years of age, providing extra literacy support to close the achievement gap for um, underserved families. Aww. Like um, a lot of the people in San Francisco, like there's a lot of people that don't have English as a first language. There's a lot of people that speak Mandarin and Vietnamese and um, there's not always great programming for those families. So there's a lot of language immersion stuff. And so yeah, so I, w- and I did like community engagement for them. So I did a lot of like outside events, but I was living in the city and I, I grew up in the country and I didn't like living in the city. And so I was like, no, I really want to do some kind of like farming, food justice, outdoor education type programming. But I actually have no experience working on a farm or know very little about farming and agriculture. So realized that um, in order to actually be able to do that, I should learn more about farming. So then I decided to do, there's this program called Woofing, which is like oh, yes. opportunity on organic farms or um, or work away. What, I, I feel like I've heard a lot of different acronyms for what people think it stands for. So I'm not sure. I think it's worldwide opportunities on organic farms. Um, ultimately, I had a few different options for places that I was thinking of going, but ultimately ended up going to Hawaii. And I was on the island of Maui. And that was where I got introduced to beekeeping and just totally fell in love with it. Wow. So the farm that you were uh, working on, was it a honeybee farm or did they just have bees or like, how did that happen? Yeah. So they just happened to have bees. It was like a permaculture farm. So part of the draw was like, come live in Hawaii, work on this beautiful farm and gain um, a permaculture design certificate in the process. So it was like an internship on a farm but it was very much geared at permaculture, which is, you know, working with the landscape and trying to, it's like a regenerative approach that sort of mimics nature. And so it was a vegetable and herb and fruit production farm primarily. And we had chickens and things like that. But then we just happened to have like two or three beehives on the farm. And the guy who was the beekeeper that tended to them, he's a guy named Paul Apau. And he had, you know, at the time had a, had a business as well called the Maui Queen Bee Company. And so he was raising queens and exporting them, naturally made it and, and then exporting them to mainland US. 
and other places. And uh, you said, hey, I need I need some help. I need, you know, people to graph for me. And I was like, okay, cool. Just like That's dive cool. right in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, was like, I don't even know what that means. I was like, I've grafted fruit trees before, but I'm pretty sure this is not the same thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was like, I really had very little experience, just basically getting in a hive a couple of times with him. And and he would come to the farm and we would like, we as the farm interns would like, you know, we helped him like build boxes and frames and stuff like that. But it was like very little experience and then essentially i just started he had a, a queen raising operation and a bee yard out on the other side of the island so um i would go out there with him a couple times a week and there was another girlfriend of mine that two of us worked both worked for him and uh yeah we just started managing his mating nukes and grafting and kind of doing the queen calendar and you know all sorts of different I just keep thinking like what an amazing step into beekeeping that was but it wasn't like you were just stepping into it you were like climbing all the way to the top and (laughs) yeah exactly yeah it was it was was really kind of unexpected and at that point you know I was about 25 at that time and I was really kind of trying to figure out okay what what do I want to do you know colony collapse and everything like was being talked about a lot and like these were definitely becoming more a part of the conversation. So I kind of realized, especially with something like grafting, I was like, this is something that most backyard beekeepers never do. You know, something that many, many beekeepers don't ever do. And it was sort of where I started. And I said, oh, this is a really niche field that this could be a really good thing to get into and, and learn more about and kind of pivot myself to. Yeah. Wow. So let's fast forward to now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long time since then. So... 2014, I moved back to the Bay Area. So I live in Santa Cruz, California, which is like about an hour and a half south of San Francisco. So a little kind of, it's a city, but it's a smaller city, um, but beautiful right on the coast. So when I was in Hawaii, there was another beekeeper that came to visit whose name is Rob Keller. And you may have heard of him or know him. He was actually just down at the Honey Love conference presenting yes I I I saw that he was gonna be there and I was like doing my research and I saw you on his website as one of his affiliate beekeepers that's cool but I never I never crossed paths with him at the conference yeah that's okay there were I there were a lot of people there I didn't even know that he was gonna be there actually and then I thought I was like oh Rob's at the conference (sighs) yeah he he and I went to Asia together which was really fun but he knew the beekeeper in Maui that I was working with and so he came out to visit and came out to the bee yard with us for a day and I actually started this was like when I first got Instagram and I started following him and saw what he was doing and he basically came to bees through art, <laughs> through fine art. Mm-hmm. And so he was um, doing all sorts of things where he was like putting mummified animals and like mummified snakes and things like that into beehives and having the bees like propolize them and taking photos <laughs> just doing all sorts of crazy stuff that was on the deep end of what, what mo- most people are like, what is this? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and thought he was kind of quirky and interesting and so uh really enjoyed his content that he was putting out there and so when I was coming back to California I said he's out of Napa Valley so he's like about an hour from San Francisco so from Santa Cruz it's about two hours so reasonable to go up and visit him and I basically reached out said hey I'm back in the bay I want to come see your apiary operation and like kind of see what you're up to and visit with you and so I went up right after I moved back went up and helped him with an educational event that he was doing in Sonoma and he teaches beekeeping at a Montessori school and so that was really cool to me because it's kind of the educational component that yes. I was missing. um so 
got to kind of see that and I was like wow this is so awesome like the school that he teaches at is like a fully functional farm (laughs) they have like 15 beehives there and do all sorts of really cool lucky kids yeah (laughs) and and he works with like six seventh and eighth grade kids so just awesome ages and so anyways just volunteered with him at this event and helped him out and then a couple days later he sent me a message and said hey do you want to work for me like I live two hours away that seems kind of crazy but I made I kind of figured it out because I I just moved back and didn't have immediate other job or anything lined up I wanted to do beekeeping Mm -hmm. um so thought hey this could be a really great opportunity to kind of apprentice with someone and learn you know directly from someone which I feel like something like beekeeping is really lends itself well to hands-on learning and uh observation yeah so that was 2014 I started working with him and every now and then I still go up and work with him but basically for a year I went up every week um and stayed for two days there and would stay overnight and so just uh learned a ton like bee camp yeah exactly (laughs) extended bee camp um and uh yeah got to see what his business model was and the you know educational work that he was doing and he does a lot of hive management for restaurants and you know businesses and individuals and kind of like at Ape Mundia someone said concierge beekeeping which I was like that's kind of snooty but then I looked up the definition of concierge and I'm like oh that's actually exactly what it is yeah yeah so yeah so um anyways we have worked with him for a number of years and it was through observing his business model Napa that I started the Santa Cruz company and we're far enough away from each other that we're not in the same market yeah that's sort of how I got to where I'm at now in terms of the business in Santa Cruz what a very unique story and turn of events and opportunities yeah it's been really cool and he's always been a really great support person for me it was through him that I met Sam Comfort and all these other people so it's been a great opportunity to network I've gotten to see like Tom Seeley a bunch of times and Paul Famous and like all these different cool people come through and there's a really rich sort of hobbyist, but but really intense, like very passionate uh, kind of beekeeping culture around the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So like the people are like really into it and spend like a ton of time working for their regional clubs and things like that. Oh, I love cool. to hear that. One of the yeah. things that we struggle with here with, with the beekeeping association that I've been with for since I started working with bees is finding people that are able to take the time to volunteer, not only for events, but for board positions when those come available. Totally. It's tough. It's really tough. Yeah. Here in Santa Cruz, I, for the past three years, I've been the president of our beekeepers and it's a, it's a lot of work, you know, it is. I think it also brings a lot of opportunities, though. That's I recently gave up my spot as president, and I went back to a, be the treasurer of the club. And and when that pos- position was open, I was trying to like tell people like this is going to open up so many doors for you. Like if you are a serious beekeeper and you want access, yeah, to lots of new opportunities, this is a great totally. way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been it's been really nice, and I feel like I hadn't had a lot of leadership roles necessarily in the past so it was cool for me to kind of get to have that responsibility and I'm still a board member um with the group so still very much involved um we kind of have a a sort of standing rule of like you know usually like two years of a term for a president and then you could always you know years down the road if you wanted to volunteer to do it again you could but yeah um, yeah and we have 
I think it's important because people do get burned out. Like I was definitely feeling burnt out towards the end of my second year and you need fresh blood, fresh ideas, keep the club vibrant. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. And, and I stepped down and and had another person step in um, after doing it for three years. And it's nice because they were sort of saying, okay, Emily, you're not going to be president right now, but um, what you can do is because you know other people kind of in the community in the Bay Area and also further afield than that, um, you should try to focus on seeing if you can help us try to gain um, access to guest speakers that are coming in, visiting and stuff like that. So trying to make some of those connections. Which I So just now you are the concierge. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I just didn't have the bandwidth for that before um, kind of figuring out all the logistics of running all the meetings. And, and yeah. Yeah, it is a lot. Okay, I have a dumb question. (laughs) There's no dumb question. (laughs) So you're in the Bay Area. Have you been there for any, like, big earthquakes? I have not, luckily. Um, I've felt small ones, but it's never been enough to really jostle things too much. I ask Um, because, you know, they say animals can sense when an earthquake is going to happen. And I would imagine bees can, too. And I, um, I was just wondering if the bees started acting weird before an earthquake. Yeah, I, I'm i not sure. I know that right before I moved back from Hawaii, like right around like the month that I moved back, they did have a really big earthquake in Napa. Um, so I got to go up and kind of see that sort of aftermath after it happened. And, you know, they had five fall over, and, <sighs> um, you know, buildings, you know, getting nothing really falling, but like massive, you know, cracks and foundations and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it can be pretty serious. And uh, while there haven't been major earthquakes, and also not here where I am in Santa Cruz, but also in Napa, um, two years ago, there were a lot of wildfires that came through. So there were a lot of um, seeing the landscape and changes. And we were lucky to actually not personally lose any hives through Napa Valley Depot, but some of them, like the houses and the fields and everything burned. But I think because where the hives are, um, they were near gardens and things that were being irrigated, a lot of them were spared. <laughs> but, you know, some of them, like, the paint had bubbled on the hive because it got so hot. Oh, <laughs> like, God. And I always thought, oh, well, the bees are just going to abscond. But then I was reading that if they can smell the smoke, they know, like, if it's a forest fire, if they just hunker down in the tree, like, a lot of times fires will pass through and if it's a larger tree, it might char the bark, but it may not burn the entire tree down. So like, it's actually safer for them to like shelter in place. But yeah, it's pretty creepy. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, <laughs> natural disasters. We yeah. haven't really had any natural disasters here since I've been keeping bees, but we had the solar eclipse that happened during the day and all of the bees came home and went inside wow. their hives, and then when the eclipse was done, they just came back out and went back to work. Wow. How oh, interesting. <laughs> it's pretty wild. They're very intelligent. I mean, they, they know they know more than us. Yeah. So, so do you also do classes, like beginning beekeeping classes? Yeah. What all does yeah. your business do? I do kind of a little bit of everything through Santa Cruz Bee Company. And, and part of that is because when I first started, I was like, well, let me just try all the things you can do with beekeeping and see what I like more and what I like as much. And, um, but I absolutely love teaching and educating people. So that was a very big component for me. When I first you know, started the business, 
um, was like the beginning of 2015, so it's been about five years. And uh, when I first started, I was just, people would call me and say, hey, can you help me with this, that, or the other thing? Some of them, you know, I still work with to this day and are, you know, people that I kind of, I do a lot of hive management for people when they're, you know, there's a lot of people that around the Bay Area that really, you know, have beautiful gardens and, and want to have bees, but just don't have the time or capacity or skill set. And they just, some people want to work together. Some people want it done for them. So for in terms of management, it's really a wide range from call me up one time and I'll help you with something. And then yeah. I listen you again to people that I have um, monthly, you know, monthly clients or accounts that I kind of do the management for or with them. And then some people it's like quarterly. So I would say that that's a pretty big component of kind of how the business can like financially sustain itself um, is through kind of consultation. But then another big part of it is um, teaching and education. And so for about four years now, I've been uh, teaching workshops through the local community college. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so they have an extension program. And I started just doing a beginner beekeeping course. And then um, after a year of doing that, I started doing a gardening class where we also would go to a plant nursery. Um, that one, I don't know as much about horticulture and plants. So I was sort of like, I mostly wanted to teach it so that I would learn more. <laughs> yeah, I feel and, like and, that's a huge knowledge gap for me. I do not know very much about plants. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. I think it's, you know, for me, I was like, well, I want, you know, people always ask me, you know, what can I plant for my bees that will be good for them? Or And for here in California, especially we have, especially in drought years, we'll have like a huge dearth period where it'll be July to November or June to November that there's like nothing. <laughs> so people are always like, what can I plant that blooms in September? So I sort of was like, well, I should learn more about kind of what I can advise people on for kind of um, seasonal forage. So yeah, so the beginner class, the bee-friendly gardening class, then I started an intermediate class. Um, and the beginner and the intermediate class are both very well attended. And I do mostly spring, fall, maybe I'll do a couple in the summer. People, that they're just people don't think as much about bees, like in late fall and winter. They're mm-hmm. kind of like, what is that? <laughs> and then yeah. it comes spring and everybody's like, bees. <laughs> so, um, you know, the spring classes for sure always have really good enrollment. And then starting last year, I started um, like a small scale queen rearing course as well. So Back to your work. roots. Yeah, back to the roots. <laughs> like, see what it's like to, you know, uh, try grafting. And, you know, because it's also a kind of a challenging thing. It's like very specific size, age larva, and you have to have, you know, the right conditions. And that's just to physically be able to know what to graft, and then you have to kind of learn all the other processes. But in that class, the grafting and kind of managing, mating moves and cell builders and everything is part of it. But I also teach a lot just about different ways to do a split <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, for, for a lot of backyard beekeepers they don't have they don't need to raise 60 queens <laughs> you know they need one or two yeah um, so I do a lot about kind of people you know techniques for you know or harvest if a colony is forming maybe you can go in and harvest a queen cell or catch a virgin queen or you know things like that so kind of learning to identify those things um and then I've done a little bit like there's also um I did a, like a workshop class where we um made like a propolis tincture and um, bees wraps and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. there's like some of those like value added products kind of classes that people that aren't beekeepers, but, you know, appreciate bees and then you know, we'll usually do like a 
a honey tasting and stuff. So that's kind of geared more for people that are just interested in these products. The beekeeping classes are super fun. And then like the community college has a horticulture department. So I have a beehive that I keep up at their horticulture garden. And so we do like half lecture and then half in hive portion. That's so nice. It's really nice for people when they, you know, a lot of the people that tend to be in their class have never seen what a beehive looks like on the inside. So like that for me is like getting to see like the wonder of people being like, whoa, like what is this? Or or hold a frame for the first time. Like that's, you know, exciting. (laughs) So and you don't really get much of a winter break from beekeeping. No. Oh, I mean, I'm jealous. <laughs> I am missing my beekeeping so bad right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, it depends on the winter, you know. And right now, like, we haven't had a whole lot of rain in the past couple weeks. But um, I feel like the last couple years, it's been a little bit later. Like, we haven't had much rain in, like, December, January. And then, like, February, March, and even into April last year were really wet. Mm-hmm. So, kind of depends and like that sort of it's not so much the really cold weather that you know it's not like we have you know ice and snow but for sure you know depending on if you are raising queens or doing anything like that you really have to work with okay when drones are already starting like I've been seeing drone crews like they're already out pretty much but it's really if I were to start you know trying to do grafting or splitting hives right now um in, in the past, I've done that. And then if you get a long period of rain, you know, it has sort of like a, ideally like a two to four week window, which is even able to get mated. And, you know, so yeah. you kind of, you have to work with the weather, which makes it challenging because people always are wanting to get started. And, you know, I think also people have a, a little bit of a skewed perception of like when you can get these. Um, yes. In where we are in California, not here so much about like Central Valley and a lot of places like the almond orchards, the almonds bloom about now. So I think people think, oh, you know, the bees are, the bees are doing their thing and there's, you know, stuff is already starting to bloom, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if you wanted to place an order for bees from, you know, a supplier, you know, it's just interesting. um, Those things can change a lot. Yeah. I mean, here, nukes are usually available in May. Yeah. Here it's like, April but it's late April usually you know and we are swarming season begins like mid-March but you know I'm looking at friends and people on Instagram and like in Florida and Southern California they're having swarms now in January (laughs) (laughs) really depends on where you are and I think that's one of the fascinating things about beekeeping is like depending on your kind of climate and weather like when I was in Hawaii we had full brood rearing year-round yes it, it did rain but it still wasn't cold, you know? So like it's more, I think it's, it's much more temperature dependent than moisture dependent for rearing. What kind of hives are you working with? Are you just using Langstroth? Primarily for me, I use Langstroth. That's what I learned on. And I do think that it's, they're easier in a lot of ways to manage. And I think the bees over winter, granted we don't have a harsh winter, but they tend to, you know, I think the bees like being in more of a vertical configuration mm-hmm. naturally. Um, I do work a little bit with top bar hives. About two or three years ago now, there was another woman in Santa Cruz who had a similar business um, and she ended up moving away. And so she said, Hey, do you want to take over my business basically? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So, um, and she had, you know, a handful of clients, but pretty much everyone that she had set these up for were in um, top bar hives. 
and then she did a couple of those long length draw fives where it's like two yeah i don't love those i don't either they're weird yeah <laughs> I, mean, I really think that bees want to have their honey above them and that's my issue with how far hives too is that here like they, they just work better in warmer climates. So we're kind of on the border with like, they, they can work here. But I just find that if you, you get to a certain size and then can't expand them beyond their width. So you yeah. can't put a feature on a top bar hive or anything like that. So um, in terms of expanding them, and sometimes you have top bar hives, like these ones were made by this woman. So she had the same specs. So they were the same sizes. But like trying to split or like if you need a frame of a frame of brood a top a bar of brood um you know a lot of the top bar hives are different dimensions yeah yeah I had a client last spring and she had um a top bar that was ready to be split yeah and then she had another empty top bar hive but it wasn't as deep as the one we were splitting from and so I think this is really why she had me do it because she knew that it would be really traumatic for her to cut into the brood combs to make it fit. And it was pretty traumatic, but, (laughs) and yeah, that's the trouble with the top bar hives is there's just so many different designs out there. Luckily I have, I have five top bar hives and they're all the same make and model. That's great. That's like the best (laughs) scenario. Yes. Yeah. And the bars are the same length as the Langstroth bars. So if push came to shove oh, and I needed awesome. to split from a top bar into a lang, I could. Yeah, that's <laughs> ideal. That's like the best, the best case scenario because, yeah, I mean, there was a time where we really needed brood and I ended up like, this lady had a top bar hive and I just like horizontally, like totally different orientation to put a deep frame of brood in her top bar hive. And I was like, <laughs> well, this is after, but we really needed uh, nurses. Like, it was just, you know. One of those things yeah so. the bees are so resilient when it comes to oh. us like doing weird little things like that <laughs> yeah. it, it, it ended up working out pretty well but yeah. um but yeah it is kind of funny so yeah primarily Langstroth hive is what I like to work with and um around here like we do have a couple of um people that sell nukes and that you know they're pretty much always kind of Langstroth range so it's just kind of you know for people if I'm you know, and, and for me, if I'm splitting a hive, it's almost always blank draw frame. Yeah. Um, so just kind of, you know, you kind of just end up gravitating towards what you, in terms of what equipment you already have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I have a little bit of experience working with, um, like, Ware hives and some different, like, styles of observation hives. But, you know, Ware hives are pretty much just observational management, really. Cause there's yeah. Not I like the size and I like what they look like. But... Yeah, it's basically observational management. Yeah, it's very hard. And I mean, you essentially, you can't manage them alone because if you're trying to under-super them, then you have to have one person lifting and the other person, you know, getting the box in place. Um, yeah. I, I overwintered one Wari Hive last year, and it's going into its second winter, or it's, it's in its second winter. And then I have a, a swarm that I put in a Wari. And the one that has overwintered twice is really mean. <laughs> so I don't want to open them up. But at the same time, like, I would like to harvest some of that honey that's in there. Because yeah. there's a lot. But then you don't know where the brood is. 
And you don't know if they have their, their brood nest, like, really tall and narrow, if they've got it just, you know, confined to a couple of boxes. Oh, yeah. You don't know where the queen is. Like, you don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's sort of like you pull that kind of, you know, top bar piece up, and then, yeah, it's like, how do you really harvest it without, I mean, you just end up ripping comb. <laughs> yeah. So just being kind of messy. Um, so, and, and you hope that you're not breaking apart um, belt or whatever. <laughs> What is your favorite thing that bees do? Oh, man. That is a very tough question. I mean, you have such an intimate knowledge of queen rearing and the development of larvae into pupa and the magic of queens, but... Oh, gosh, yeah. It's so it's so hard to know. I mean, one of my favorite, like, phenomenons that I, you know, with working with queen rearing and getting to, um, you know, be in hives when they're just right around forming or post-forming is hearing the queen piping. It's just a really fun thing, especially when I'm working with new beekeepers that they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, do you hear that other sound? It's sort of like, it's like a different, a totally different sort of sound to it than the regular hum of the hive. I've only heard that one time. I love it. It's like, it's just such a different sound. And, and the fact that, you know, you know what is happening, they're communicating with each other and the whole process of the queen doing their, going into battle, the battle cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and getting to kind of observe and look and teach people about, you know, okay, this is a queen cell that hatched on its own because there's the little trap door on the bottom of the queen cell versus one that's torn out on the side that kills probably by another queen and then the bees you know, they tell the fact that they're dead, so they opened it up and removed the pupa, and, you know, the kind of intimate stuff with queen rearing. And, like, I mean, also just, it comes up in so many conversations that I have when people ask about the process of, you know, you only have one queen bee, and, you know, what, how do they make a new queen bee, or how does that all happen? And getting to explain the whole food is destiny piece mm-hmm. is, like, that just blows my mind that, you know, just their food can determine whether or not it becomes a worker bee or a queen bee and determines that, that whether or not they're sexually mature and have the right organs. It's really, that's really interesting to me. What's the most baffling thing that you've experienced with bees? Oh. <laughs> not life in general. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the past couple years, and I think it, again, it's coming from a place of raising queens and checking checking hives consistently to see okay do we uh you know where are we at in the process of um, this queen being uh you know hatched from her queen cell and then checking back to see uh if she if she's mated and if she's laying eggs and um noticing uh a lot of challenges with queens um in the past couple of years particularly with sometimes queens never coming back from their mating flight uh, apparently, or also seeing what appears to be like pseudo queen or sort of the half cast queen where see that you have a queen in a hive, but she's not laying properly. So she's laying multiple eggs to sell uh-huh. and uh, wondering did she, did she not mate with enough drones was usually for me, my observation is that that's a queen that something went wrong in her feeding when she was really young, that she was, you know, had oh. since to brood food and then they said oh wait no this needs to be a queen and then you know they even if there's a short window of time in which they're not fed royal jelly yeah. you know then they can develop and look just like a queen 
but they don't actually have like a fully developed reproductive system. You just blew my mind. (laughs) That's cool. It can be super baffling because people are like, wait, I have a queen. I can see her. Yeah. But she's only laying drones. And so like sometimes you get laying worker bees where the laying workers lay drone eggs if they don't have a queen. But then in my experience, sometimes you have a queen that just is really either really poorly mated and has very weak pheromones and then they'll supersede her. But then also in that supersedure process, like, you know, generally I think just depending on what's happening in your environment, sometimes those queens are able to find all the right drones. And just based on your your episode about the Map My GTA episode. I, yeah, I know. That's so cool. Mate with or you know, we thought it was like ten and we're like, oh, it might actually be like seven drones that they made. Right. that's what's so amazing about honeybees is we're always discovering new things and and we're always discovering how wrong we were about certain assumptions or even even studies that have been done like the whole varroa hemolymph thing Mm -hmm. yeah all this time it was wrong yeah and And everybody was saying that that was what it was yeah yeah, it's pretty crazy. I, yeah, I, we're we're making new discoveries and we're updating old discoveries. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> updating the the science and the research and yeah, a couple of years ago, um, I saw Tom Seely speak at one of the might have been the San Mateo group, um, and he, you know, he said, "I would say I probably know about three percent of what happens in a beehive." <laughs> like. If Tom Seeley knows 3%, what the heck do we know? <laughs> like, wow, that's incredible. There's just, that's what really draws me in is that, you know, I feel like I'm a lifelong learner in general in many things in the world, but especially with beekeeping, there's just, there's such a wealth of knowledge and things that have already been discovered. And then I feel like there's always possibilities for, you know, being that person that observes that one thing and makes note of it and says, hmm, what's happening here? And then, you know, you for all you know, you might discover something that no one's known before. Right, yeah. <laughs> kind of cool to think about um, all the possibilities that still exist. Cool. Well, Emily, it has been such a pleasure getting to know you and talking with you. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me on the show, Andy. Of course. It's my pleasure. To learn more about Emily, visit SantaCruzBeeCompany.com. You can also find Emily on Instagram at Santa Cruz Bee Co. I'll also include links to her website and social media on my website at beekeeperconfidential.com. If you've been enjoying the show and want to help support what we do here, you can become a patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Mandy Shaw. Stay safe out there, everyone. These are weird times. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Confidential is a Waggle Works production and is written and produced by Mandy Shaw.